Verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will, will come and will not delay. And by, uh, and, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made of what was visible. And then a Habakkuk, also New International Version, I apologize, I just printed the wrong one. But a Habakkuk chapter 2 is what is being quoted in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to read to you in context Habakkuk chapter 2. There's verses 4 through 6. It says, See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he is as greedy as the grave, and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? And Habakkuk was pointing out that it was an awful time. And in context, what's being quoted by the author of Hebrews chapter 11 is the just shall live by faith. But when you look at the just shall live by faith in Habakkuk chapter 2, it it was awful. In context, the, the, the season for Habakkuk was terrible. There was no faith in the land. Um, the, the Israelites had been overrun. Uh, evil was permeating every vestige of society. And here is Habakkuk standing strong and he's saying, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And then from that, we get Romans 1.17, where Paul uses it. And that's why we believe him to have been the author, because he also uses it in Galatians. Uh, in Romans one seventeen he says that the just shall live by faith. Uh, Galatians 3, he says the just shall live by faith. He quotes out of Habakkuk chapter 2. That's why we believe him to be the author. And here, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, what does that mean? And, and, and it seems somewhat confusing because the, the three verses that we're going to look at tonight in chapter 11 of Hebrews now, faith is a confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Um, if you want to do it in, in New King James Version, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That right there is confusing to me. And you just think about it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's almost confusing just the way it's written. It's the substance of things hoped for. So you're hoping for something that you don't see. And it's, and it's the substance of those things you're hoping for. And it's the evidence of the things you can't see. And, and you look at that and you think, well, that's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is taking the picture in the menu that the food that's going to be on your table is going to be equal to the picture you see on the menu. There, there are things that God lays out before us, and we look at these things. Faith is a substance. Uh, one author writes, just as our physical eyesight is the sense that gives us evidence of the material world, faith is the sense that gives us evidence of the invisible spiritual world. He goes on to say, faith has its reasons. The Bible doesn't recommend a blind leap of faith, but the reasons 
can't be measured in a laboratory. They have to be understood spiritually. Faith extends beyond what we learn from our senses, and the author is saying that it has its reasons. It tests are not those of the senses which yield uncertainty. And this was Harold Morris who wrote this. Of things hoped for, of things not seen, if you have the substance before you or if you can see it, there's no use for faith. Faith is needed for what we can't see and can't touch. Faith does not contradict reason, though it may go beyond reason. And we're going to see a series of, of ancients going with Abraham, and we're going to see a, a myriad of, of testimonies in Hebrews chapter 11 of folks that believe God when the evidence physically didn't exist. And they trusted him because God gave them his word. And it was his word that allowed them to move forward in faith. Faith does not contradict reason, though it may go beyond reason. I like this author. He says, this is a belief beyond reason, but not in contradiction to reason or against reason. Faith is a substance, the evidence. Faith is not a bare belief or intellectual understanding. It is a willingness to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. Faith enabled people in the past to overcome. Abraham believed God in relation to Sarah, even when she was beyond childbearing years, that she would give birth to a child. You're going to see this time and time again by these these uh, these folks in the hall of faith. For it, for by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. Really what faith is, it's a testimony. We look back at their lives, and how many people do you know whose faith has inspired you? You know, I think of the story that I often refer to with Chuck Smith and Kay when they were completely broke, they had no money, he was working at Alpha Beta, um, he had he had been offered a management job, but he couldn't pay his union dues because he'd had to go to his mother-in-law's funeral. And he's sitting there tallying up the bills, and it's $400. And they wouldn't allow him to go back to work because he hadn't paid his union bills, union fees. And, and it, it's at this point where he just says, God, I don't know what to do. If, if you don't pay this, I'm going to have to leave the ministry and go into management. If you want me in ministry, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you've got to come up with this money. And this was back in the 60s or 50s when 400 bucks was $40,000. And he's looking at it just saying, I, I don't see how this is going to happen, God. And he gets a phone call. And he he'd spent the whole night lamenting and, and you know, crying out to God and stressing over it and didn't get any sleep. In the morning, the phone rings, and it's a friend. He says, the Lord put you on my heart. We're sending you a check for, I don't know, it was like $480. So he'd pay all the bills and leave him 20 bucks. And he's just so thrilled, and he grabs Kay, and he starts to dance around the kitchen. Praise the Lord. They're all just rejoicing together and dancing and and, and he goes back into his study and he's just blathering to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And the Lord says, Chuck, why are you so excited? He says, because the man said he's going to send me a check for $480. He says, is that why you're dancing with Kay in the kitchen? Yes, Lord. The man, he said, well, why didn't you dance with Kay last night when I gave you my word that I would meet your needs in the riches of Christ exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ask or imagine? How come you didn't dance last night? And, and Chuck right there just realized, Lord, I'm sorry. I mean, we, we, we take the confidence of somebody on the other end of a phone, and back then it's not like they could wire it to your account or you could do bill pay or, you know, this, is, this had to come with a cashier's check. It had to be mailed. You had to really, I mean, a lot of faith still. And yet right there, the Lord showed Chuck. And, and all the things that Chuck did in that ministry, I look at him, and, and though I didn't have an, an intimate friendship with him, he inspired me. I see in Don McClure, another one who's gone before me, and he's inspired me. And I... And I see all these folks have gone before me. I think of Alan Redpath, and I think of Elizabeth Elliot, and I, Gladys Allward, and all these people. And I love reading biographies of these folks because they inspire me. That's why it's so much fun to go through the Hall of Faith because it'll inspire us as, as people.
Oh, thanks, Glenn. He read my... I think I swallowed a gnat. I was straining at it. Anyways. And so as we go through this, it'll strengthen our own faith as we look at our life. And you come across these things, and how many of my stories through my own life have you used as illustrations to get through your life? And all I'm doing is passing on a story or passing on an experience of what God's done in my life. And we have to build a community based on this. Thank you so much. We build a community of faith based on these testimonies. And that's why the scripture says, for it, the elders obtained a good testimony. A testimony is a life well lived, one that people can bank on. Because if somebody's gone before us, we know that we're going to be able to endure this. And we know we're going to be able to survive it. Sorry about that. <clears throat> it's still there too. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 says, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. If we're going to have a righteous life, we're going to have to trust the Lord. And, and I, I was going through this and through this and trying to figure out a way to inspire you to understand this passage. And I came across a story that really touched me. But before I read it, I want to share with you this. Faith takes the future and makes it a present foundation. Takes the, faith takes the future and makes it a present foundation. And here's how it works. Faith requires us to take action, but I wanted to share with you the, the two words in the passage itself. Let me get to them. Here it is. In the scripture where it says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which, were, which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word. This happens when God simply commanded, let there be light. Yahior wah, Yahior, light be, light was. Genesis 1.3. The psalmist explains, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. By faith, we understand we did not see this act of creation. We only know it by faith. We weren't there on the day of creation, but we, by faith, believe it to have, to have occurred. Now, the world is divided. The ideology that we're contending with is that matter just happened. It was created by accident, by chaos. And then you have a, a, an intelligent design. You have creation. And these are the two ideological differences in our culture. One produces death, one produces life. One is a foundation, one is chaos. One reduces to its least common denominator. The other builds and, and creates societies and cultures and families. I'll, I promise I won't make you do it again. Thank you. Now relax. I, I'm good. Big gulp. And then I'll have to use the restroom, and then we're all ruined. We also know the world was created and created by an intelligent designer. Again, this is faith going beyond, but not in contradiction to reason. By faith, we understand the text does not say that God created the world with or by faith since God sees and knows all things. Faith in a human sense does not apply to God. Since we understand faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, we know that God sees everything and does not hope for anything. It's not faith that made the heavens. God made the heavens. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God. Now, that's a problem within Christianity because we think if we can believe hard enough, we can make it so. We can speak it into existence, and that's not what God's saying. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God. God created the heavens and the earth. He saw them. All things are laid bare before his eyes. It didn't require him to have any faith. He created it. Now, here's the, here's, here's the, the way that it spins, and pay attention to it. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Most scientists at the time of the book of Hebrews 
when it was written, believe the universe was created out of existing matter, not out of nothing. They believe the world was made out of things which are visible. So if you take out the spiritual side of it and you watch Doctor Strange and the thing that, you know, the movies that are out, I, I believe only in matter, what I can see. There's no spiritual realm, only in matter. And, and that, that is a secularist view that there's just matter. Matter's ne- neither created nor destroyed. It just is there. Okay. And as you've heard me say a thousand times, a joke about the scientists and they go to make man out of dirt and, and they reach down to get dirt. And God says, make a man. They reach down to get dirt. And God says, wait a minute, get your own dirt. Because we live in a world of matter. We can form, but we don't create out of nothing. That matter was put there. Who started it? And, and, and whether you have, you have intelligent design or you have evolution, there still has to be a beginning. Who started it? Now, evolutionists go back, and, and the best that they can come up with, at least in the studies I've done, and I don't want to oversimplify, but the best they can come up with is an alien did it. Okay. Where did he come from? Thank you very much, Bailey. Where did he come from? Let's just keep going back ad infinitum. Somewhere there's a start. Somebody started this. Matter exists. We live in a world of substance. We can form it, we can shape it, but we don't create out of nothing. And the fascinating thing out of Genesis 1-3 is the word that's used in Hebrew is unlike any word in any other language. It's called bara, which means out of nothing God created. And I've said this countless times. If I were to ask you to describe nothing, you would say nothing is the absence of something. Nothing is darkness. Nothing is void of anything. Nothing is... And you're using the verb to be by saying is, which means you're saying it's something. You, you can't even describe nothing. And yet God formed it by his spoken word. He spoke and the heavens were created. His word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh dwelt with man. It's his word. Whenever we teach, if the Bible is the central aspect of everything we do in the church, then Christ is centered to everything we do because he is the word. And the word is living and breathing and sharpening two-edged sword. Our lives, how many people in the room, and it's a small crowd because it's the day before Thanksgiving, how many people in the room, your lives have been profoundly changed simply by the preaching of the word of God into your life? Raise your hand. That's the power of the living, breathing word of God. It transforms. As it created the heavens out of nothing, it took the void in our own lives and transformed us. And speaking these words of life, it's fascinating. We spent time here earlier going through Thanksgiving, things that we're grateful for in our prayer time. And one of the things I pointed out in our, in our time of, of, of gratitude and Thanksgiving, um, I, I talked about my father with Alzheimer's. And how even in Alzheimer's, God used my dad's sickness to bless our family <clears throat> at a very critical juncture. And only God can do that. Take something as awful as Alzheimer's and use it so profoundly in our family's life. My dad's in glory right now, and he's there going, God, how did you do that? And we're down here going, how did you do that? And that's the Lord. It's the power of his word that transforms us and causes us to come alive. His word is already living. He causes us to come alive to his word out of nothing. When it says in the scripture, the substance of things not seen, the word substance is hypostasis. It means things put under substructure, foundation, confidence, firm assurance. It's the foundation upon which you stand and you can't see it. All of you raised your hand because the word, which is intangible, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, I mean I'm speaking it, and, and as these words go out, they're invisible. 
And they're leaving my mouth and going into your ear and touching your heart and transforming your life. And, and yet you can't see it. But it's manifesting itself in our life. And it's creating a foundation, a strength for us to be able to stand upon. And lives before, in the testimony of having stood on those words, those words of life, give us a foundation upon which we stand. And that's where we get this idea of, of a firm trust or a foundation. And the word hope, El Pizzo is to wait for salvation with joy and full confidence. It is a completely religious term. That with hope, we know that if God said it, I believe it, that settles it. His word has never let me down. And at times where I haven't trusted it and I've been unfaithful, he's been faithful to his word. Let God be true and every man a liar. And as I was trying to think, how can I put this across to all of you tonight? How can I get this to sink into our heart? What is this idea of, of this, this odd concept of faith? Here's a story. Put yourself in it. Now, I got a glass of water here. Mm. It's cold too, thank you. Imagine yourself. Put your cup down. You, you can't have that right now. I get the water, not you. Imagine yourself in a desert. You're five days in. You haven't had a a drop of water. And you're in crisis. You don't find a water source, you're going to die. Listen to the story. A single traveler, that's going to be you. A single traveler had hiked for many miles across the desert. Their water supply was gone. And they knew that if they did not find water soon, they would surely die. Okay? Got it? In the distance, you see what looks like an abandoned cabin. And when you arrive, you discover an old rusty pump near the back door of the cabin. Then you notice a tin can tied to the pump. And with the tin can, there's a note inside of it. The note has the following inscription. Dear stranger, the well has never gone dry, but the pump needs to be primed in order to bring up the water. Under the white rock to the right, I buried a jar of water away from the sun. There's enough water in the jar to prime the pump. Pour half of it into the pump to wet the leather. Wait, then pour the rest of the water and begin to pump. When you're finished, please fill the jar and put it back as you found it for the next traveler who comes this way. Have faith and trust me. Now you're dying of thirst and you got a jar of water that's under a white rock and you find it and it's there. So his words are true to that point and you're dying of thirst and you know you can drink that and get to where you need to go but the next person's going to come is going to be dead. What are you going to do? Think quietly. <laughs> what are you going to do? Will you dig the water jar from the sand and drink it? Will you believe and in believing pour every drop of water into the pump while you're dying of thirst? Will you take the risk both for yourself and for the next weary traveler that may pass that way? What would you do? Okay. Ponder that. Because what is faith? Faith is having great need and taking great risk. That's a pretty big risk, isn't it? This is your survival. You're pouring it into a pump and by faith, hoping it's going to prime it and get it working. 
Or you can just look out for yourself and forget everyone else who'd gone before you. And, and what's cool is you, un, you, you, you go under the white rock and you find that jar of water. So thus far, his words proved to be true. Now, God has laid before us a note in a can, hasn't he? There's an illustration here. And the note the can has 66 books. It's called his word. Words of salvation, words of life, words of living water in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, right? And he's given you this living water. He's given you his word. God, will you show me a sign? I'll give you my word. God, will you do a miracle? I'll give you my word. Will we take him at his word? Will we dance around the kitchen at night with Kay? Long before we get the phone call from a friend. It's the source of life. They point to the eternal life, eternal life found only in Christ Jesus. And what are you going to do if you prime the pump and then refill the water? You're testifying to the next person who comes that is faithful. Can you imagine if you took a writing instrument and you said, it's true, signed Rob McCoy. It's true, right? Signed Ed Abosian, right? It's true, right? Micah Stevens. And each person that lays that down in the hall of faith, the next person who comes along goes, do you, do you think it's going to be easier for the next person? That's why we're going to go through the hall of faith. Because each of you has a testimony for future generations where you've got to bury that jar that they can come along and see your name as having trusted in God. And that's why we prepare the next generation by the way we, we live our life. One of the reasons why faith is lost in a generation is because though we read it, we don't apply it. Our children never see us acting in regards to faith. We trust in everything but God's word. Let's think about that for a second. Look at your finances. If we were to tally it up, is there really faith in your finances? Your prayer life. Fasting. Those are three areas in your life that really require faith. To give to a God you can't see, to pray to a God you can't see, and to fast. Deny your physical needs to a God you can't see. What does that say to your children as they witness that in your life? What does it say to your children as you lay down your life in regards to taking a job that doesn't make any sense, but God's called you to it? Take, venturing in faith and going a direction. We, we, want, we want the easy route. We, we don't want to go until we have the money in hand. God's saying, go, and I'll show you a land that you don't know of. We're going to see that with Abraham. Each one of these people we're going to study is going to challenge us, and they're going to sign that note in that tin can. Now, what did Jesus say in John 6? He talked about, I'll give you a water that you'll never thirst again. And this is a testimony that we rely on God, that he's going to meet our needs even in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He'll minister and, and touch us. Do you have faith in God's word? And that's the question. Do you have faith in God's word? His living word? Or is it about you? No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And when you're being tempted, God will give you a way out. Do you believe that? And then when that opportunity comes, do you take it? Or do you just drink the water and say, forget everybody else? I want what I want, and I want it now, and I don't care about a testimony to future generations. I'm not signing the list. I'm drinking the water. And really what you're doing by indulging your flesh and, and denying faith 
and growing in that process is it's not about you. It's about the next pilgrim that comes along and doesn't find the water because you've drained it. You, you, you've, you've wiped it out for future generations. Godly kids don't come along just because you're lucky. They've got to see you living this. They're looking for your name on that note. It's very important. True faith brings forth a confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances, in spite of consequences. It's going to cost you something to obey God's word. You have to do the hard thing. You have to tell the truth. You got to admit you're wrong. You have to confess your sins one to another. This this is all faith. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. You have to repent. These are all commands of God. You, You feed upon his word daily. You fellowship with believers. You pray without ceasing. These are all acts of faith. You give hilariously. And you know why we don't give hilariously? Because our faith is in money. Honestly, our faith is in money. We don't want to part with it. My father-in-law, and, and I used to get him, I, I, I'd get embittered. I would. And it was, it was me. God smacked me around and showed me. Here's a man that he came along in, my, in, in the life of my wife. How You were two years, three years old when? Three. He comes along, and, and here's a, a single mom in the 60s with three kids. And her ex-husband is awful. And Tom comes along with two of his own kids and a wife that has left him. He's, he's working unbelievable hours at Lockheed, 37 years at Lockheed. Sometimes he'd be in a windowless office for years on end. They give him the worst locations. And just to make ends meet, he'd rebuild engines in the evening. And he brings in a blended family, takes her three kids, his two kids, and holds this family together. They would do co-ops where they would buy large amounts of food just to be able to feed these empty holes of uh, sons. And the three boys were just, they'd buy whole chickens, and they'd bleach the bones, all of them be gone. D would lament over how they just consume massive quantities of food. And they're trying to hold it together and keep this family going. And Tom is tighter than a tambourine. I mean, he just, he, everything he saves. Save, save, saves. I'm raised the exact opposite. It's it just, you know, and there's never anything in the bank account, but it's always this, just. And, and, and uh, I, I, I like a challenge when somebody tries to take a bill from me you know, a check. Tom never wins. I always, I always get the check for, to, for the most part. And I look at it, I think, man, you know, you're the one with more resources. Why aren't you picking it up? And it occurred to me, for 26 years, I've been married to the most remarkable woman on the face of the earth who was given a home of security and blessing from a man who took over what the world would consider a mess and brought stability and strength and caused, by a work ethic, everyone to be fed and clothed and cared for. And that means I pick up every bill from here until he goes to be with the Lord. It's worth it, right? And, and this, is, this is the picture that, that God wants us to operate in a context of obedience. 
And the Lord showed me, I'm working in you, faith. I want you to see things the way I see it. Whenever you're embittered, is that the Lord? No. You've got to work through it and and look for the Lord in that equation. You have to find the Lord because he says, give thanks in what? All things. That means you've got to dig deep. You've got to find it. You've got to find a place to be thankful for in, in Alzheimer's. And I'll tell you what, when cancer comes knocking at your door or the brakes don't work and you hear screeching and then the crash, or you get the call late at night, it's at those moments where your faith is tested. If he's, if he's been proven faithful and you've taken him at the little things, he's going to be faithful in the big things. And you're going to be able to sail through those and find the good in it. And you're always looking for the good in it. Because God is good. And we trust him. You see, it's when crisis comes where it doesn't fit the world that we want to have designed. And we think God isn't playing by our tune. That we get irritated with him and we want to quit. That's not faith. God, God to you is a genie in a bottle. Where you want to speak it into existence as though God has some sort of obligation to you. Our job is to see him in everything and to give thanks in all things. That's not to say that I give thanks for the cancer. Cancer's awful. I wish it didn't exist. I wish death didn't exist. But in the midst of it, God has something to teach us. I wish Alzheimer's didn't exist. But in the midst of it, I see God's hand. He uses it together for good. I don't know how he does it, but he's done it every single time in my life. It says, give thanks for and in all things. That's what the scripture says. That's tough, right? But that's faith. Will God ever let you down? No. Remember that when all hell breaks loose, what you just said. Because you're going to want to drink the water and tell everyone behind you, forget you. And just take matters into your own hands because God's forsaken you. And why bother about the next generation or the next pilgrim coming along? Forget about a testimony. Just drink the water. Forget about putting your name on the list. Just get to the next destination because it's all about you. That's not faith. That's selfishness. Faith requires us to take action. Faith requires us to risk. I would ask all of us a question tonight in this coming new year. What's God asking of you? I know what he's asking of me. I don't like it. I'm fighting it. But he wants it. And what kind of a risk are you going to take? What kind of action is going to apply that risk that you grow? And you know what's really neat? Is that when you take that risk and that action, your faith expands and your world becomes bigger. You're not driven by a bank account and by what the world calls security. And your kids aren't scared. We want to protect them, don't we? Best thing we can do for them is let them see faith in action.
Let him take risk. I, I like what Mike was saying. And get, Oliver's doing something. He's trying to put something in the light socket, and everyone he's still he's in. And, and Mike is like, he's going to learn. No, granted, he'd be put in jail for child abuse with that statement. But there's a point where you go, you know what? I, I remember when I snuck into the living room and I tried to put a fake light bulb in one of the lights and I was told by my parents not to do it. I'd gotten it from Disneyland. He would put a ring and he'd touch in, it would, a light bulb would hold in your hand. It was made out of plastic. And I screw this thing in and it electrocutes me. I wake up, I'm on the other side of the living room. I've knocked over two chairs. My parents are standing over me. And my dad goes, I told you. And I mean, I was just, I was dazed. And they were scared. But do you think I ever did that again? And do you think I listened to my dad? Sometimes we are experiential in our faith, and you have to learn these things. If we don't trust God, it's as if we drink from the jar that's buried in the sand instead of priming the pump, and we just move on. Now, let me close with this. Let's go back to the desert. Let's go back to the cabin. There's the water pump. You're dying of thirst. That's good. You're all alone. Your canteen is bone dry. And there's the rusty pump. And there's the note written. And this time, instead of saying, you know, it's from a stranger, let's say it's from a pilgrim. What's a pilgrim? A sojourner passing through. And this is a life of faith. And the pilgrim says, I've buried a jar of water to prime the pump. Don't drink any of it. Pour half of it into the pump to wet the leather. Wait, then pour the rest, and then pump. Have faith. Believe. When you're through drawing water, fill the jar and bury it in the sand for the next weary pilgrim traveler, right? As you read that note, and I I put this down, as you read the note, you see the truths that lie within. God gives you the assurance, the strength, the conviction to live life, to live life to the fullest. But it also asks you to surrender yourself, to surrender yourself to another, to lay your life down for others who come after you and also to lay your life down for the Lord and take him at his word. It asks you to surrender yourself. The last thing you want to do is pour that water into the pump. You'd rather drink it. You surrender yourself to the Lord. How do you do that? By surrendering to his word. And what is Jesus? He's the author and finisher of your faith. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Faith comes in obedience to the word of God. The note says what you're supposed to do. Do it. And when you do it, what does it do? The scriptures proclaim for generations to come, that his word is true. And as you put your name on that list, as we're going to see in the hall of faith, everyone who comes after you is going to say, it worked for Abraham. It worked for Isaac. It worked for Jacob. It worked for Sarah. It worked for Rahab and Gideon and Samson. We can go down the list. It worked for David, right? And we'll go down this list and we're going to see ourselves in each of these folks as we go through their lives. But we have to take him at his word. And his word is going to require that we take risk when we have great need and we put it all on the line for the Lord's sake. 
one of the things that the Lord did for Michelle and I in our marriage, and I, I remember this, I had left my job with Unilever to go work in Fresno. And I remember when Michelle and I were engaged, and I, and I, I, I think she knew more than I thought she knew. She's always had great insight. And I remember sitting, it was like a ledge or a wall or something overlooking her parents' place when we were engaged. And I said, how do you feel about going into ministry? And at the time, I had a great job with a company car and traveling all over the Western states. And I had you know, flying on American Airlines, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of perks. I said, how would you feel about going into ministry? And she said, whatever you want to do. And she had seen me in ministry when we were dating, and she saw how much joy it brought me. So here we are. We have a house in Southern California we'd purchased, and, and uh, I'd left Unilever, and I was working for A.C. Nielsen, and I was driving to Orange County, and I was sick of it, and I was tired, and I just wanted to go into ministry. And I came home one day, and I said, Roger Manassian offered me a part-time youth ministry position, uh, it pays 800 bucks a month. We have to pay for half our health care, but they accept pre-existing conditions. And Michelle at the time was like seven months pregnant with our second child. And she said, if that's what you want to do, let's do it. And we left all of that. And within less than a year, we had lost our house. Uh, we had lost our cars. We were driving a, an old Cadillac and a Volvo that had 240,000 miles on it. We were living in the equivalent of Section 8 housing. We were eating Second Harvest Food Bank food. I'm working in an ethnic church. I'm not even Armenian, and I'm working in an Armenian church. Um, we're in Fresno when Fresno was the, the, it had the second highest murder rate, second highest car theft rate of any city in the United States. And we were living in the worst part of Fresno. Well, almost the worst part, right? The demarcation zone. We had a car stolen from our driveway. A woman held up a gunpoint, our back fence, on and on and on. We watched it raid on a drug house on television, we turned off the TV, opened the blinds, and watched it live across the street. And, and, and Michelle's pregnant in the dead of the summer in Fresno, triple digits, one of the hottest summers on record. Um, literally, people were going to hell to try to avoid the heat. It was so bad. It was a joke. And, and I remember being in the, and then I throw my back out. I go through all these trials, and it tested us. And te- it tested my, fa- my, my, my wife's family, tested my family. My parents didn't want anything to do with it. They were angry. Michelle's parents were a little more understanding. And it, got, it just seemed like it got worse and worse and worse. And God was in the business of reducing us to a minimum that he might pour in his maximum. And he kept removing all these areas that I considered security, one by one. And you know why I couldn't run? Because I had nowhere to go. God knew, and he removed. It's like he, he, it's like he took my hip out of place like he did with Jacob. And, and it came to a place, I remember it was vivid. We, I had left Fresno. We ended up in San Jose. We were living with my in-laws. They, had to, they sold their house. We had to move into the church. And, and I had started a, a job with Staples, and I was driving back and forth. I'd been offered a sales uh, manager position at a, a store in Nevada, which was in Santa Rosa, and it was really exciting because her parents were excited because they were going to retire there. And it was by Tracy and Mark, Michelle's sister and brother-in-law. And we were all going to be there. And they had envisioned their retirement. And we put a down payment on an apartment there. And I was going to be the sales manager. And next was going to be a store manager. Got to avoid this whole ministry thing that my in-laws were kind of tolerating at the time. Because they kind of looked at me a little bit like Jim Jones. And, and I remember one night I came home and I turned to Michelle. And, 
And I just said, every time we stepped foot in this church, and we were living in a windowless apartment, and it was awful. I said, every time I step foot in this church, I feel blessed. And she said, so do I. I said, I think God is telling us we're supposed to stay. I, I actually think she's the one who said it first. And, and I said, I know. I feel the same way. So when we decided to stay there, and I was going to remain, I, I was going to lose my job, her parents were upset. And they wanted to meet with Michelle apart from me, with, her, with Michelle's sister, and they wanted to try to deprogram her from me, try to talk her off the ledge of this insane act of faith. And I remember she came back, and, and she was, you know, it was, it was a rough night. And the two of us just realized for the first time, we were called to this. Windowless apartment, cockroaches, second harvest food, stale bread. The people upstairs would do their, their dishes and their noodles would end up in our laundry, the plumbing. It was awful. It was awful. And we wanted to stay there. That's faith. And we look at each other and we just think, okay. And shortly after that, Don comes to the door. Don McClure is the pastor of the church and offers a job. Actually says to Michelle, what does Rob want to do? He wants to be a minister. What do you want to do? I want to support Rob. Those were the only two things she could have said for Don to say yes. That's the kind of guy he was. Next day, he offers me a job, which was like a 40% pay cut from what I was already getting paid at Staples, which was nothing. And I'm looking at that going, he's gotten us this far. And it was, it was hard. Four and a half years there. The closest friends we've ever made were there. They were all at the wedding. It was precious. It made me the minister I am. We knew God called us there. Great risk, great need. We took great risk. And, and the Lord established in me an understanding of ministry that I would have never gained anywhere else. I could have drank in the water and left a testimony to my children and gone to Santa Rosa and followed whatever it was for security and all that. We stayed because God told us to. And what we did is we primed the pump with the water and poured it all in. We had nothing left. And the pump started to flow and that living water saturated my children. That they can look at us and go, my parents have faith. And I've seen the way God works in their life and he can work in my life the same way. And I have to tell you, it was hard every step of the way. And it got us here that, that when... We're over at Skyline and we're at three services full and we're thinking this is a time to do a mega church. This is where you get the big church and you go, you know, and you, you get the mortgage and you, and I, I looked and I said, no, let's, let's give half the church to Manuel. They can stay there and let's go take over the church that's struggling and we'll just do two small churches so everybody knows each other. And people are like, you're giving away your church? Mike Huckabee was like, are you an idiot? He told me that. It was really comforting. And I remember the first Sunday that Michelle and I got here, it was a total act of faith. We show up and everybody's late for worship. And Michelle and I are looking at each other, and Manuel ends up getting all the big tithers, and I get all the staff. So I've got all the liabilities. He's got all the assets. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm standing there with Michelle, and nobody's in the church. And we look at each other and say, well, we did what God told us to do. Let's, he's been faithful so far. And we've never missed a payroll. We've never lost anything. And God's been faithful every step of the way. God did a neat work in Manuel and Carrie's life. He's done a great work in our life. And, and really, had the folks not come and made that separation, they would have, I believe with all my heart, they would have never been able to endure a pastor going into politics. They had already survived this. This was easy, right? 
and, and to see what God's done with this little fellowship in each step. But it's, it's having great need and taking great risk. And what it does is it develops our faith. And what I want to do in the next coming weeks is I want us all to be able to sign our name on that note in the tin can for the next traveler because our life will have substance because we're going to have faith. And that's what we're going to do in the weeks ahead. Amen?